I know that I'm not worthy of the love that Jesus offered me. But I'm grateful that he gave it nevertheless. And God loves you too. And I've learned that the message of love is not limited to just simply making us feel good. Sometimes love will tell us things that don't make us feel good. I remember one time uh, Jesus, as he's giving counsel to the churches in Revelation, the third chapter, and of course he was giving counsel to the last church, Laodicea. And as Jesus was giving that counsel to Laodicea, he says to Laodicea in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. When Jesus made that statement, believe it or not, that was a statement that was motivated by love. You see, when God loves a man, when God loves a woman, he's not going to tell them what they want to hear, but he's going to tell them what they need to hear. And if the love of God is in the man of God's heart, then he wants to tell the people what they need to hear and not simply what they want to hear. We're living in a time in Earth's history where everybody wants to hear a message of peace and safety. We're living in a time where people want to hear that everything's all right when in truth everything is all wrong. And brothers and sisters, I'm going to let you know right now that any man that gives those kind of messages does not love you. When someone sees that a fire is coming and that fire has sweeping destructive force of anything that's in his path, if a man has love in his heart for the people, you know what that man's going to say? He's going to say, there's a fire coming. You need to get out of the way and you need to get to a place of safety so you don't get burnt. And that's why I'm so thankful that God gave the everlasting gospel of the three angels' messages to his people to give to the world to let them know just as Noah had to tell the people of days of old that a flood was coming and the same way that Noah had to give that message is the same way God has given us a message to give to the world to let them know no not necessarily a flood but to let them know a crisis is coming and this crisis is very real this crisis, if we are unprepared for it, brothers and sisters, we will not be prepared for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And therefore, God commissions us to address the issues directly connected to this crisis. Because I believe, brothers and sisters, that if we're prepared for that final crisis, we will be prepared for the second coming of Jesus Christ. But if we are unprepared for that final crisis, we will be unprepared for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's why tonight we're going to pick right back up where we left off yesterday because we saw that the same way Noah had a message and no matter how many words Noah might have put to that message, Noah's message was always the same. A flood is coming. That was Noah's message. Noah might have added a little different sentence here and a different sentence there, but the message was the same. A flood is coming Get on the ark. 
And I believe that the ministers that God's using in these very last moments of earth's history, they can say what they want, but they must let the people know that a crisis is coming. And there's an ark that we need to get ourselves into. And brothers and sisters, we're going to pick right back up where we left off, where we were talking about that plan of Rome. That's exactly where we left off last night, and that's where we pick up on tonight. And before we approach God's word to deal with this subject, as much as we are able to, let us approach the Lord in prayer. And if we can, let's kneel together as we go before our God and our creator. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for another privilege, another night, where we once again can come together, Lord, to hear the message of the hour. We are living in the time of the closing message of the third angel. And Father, we believe the message contained in that word is still for our very hearts. And it's our desire, Lord, that we will come to know Jesus as a personal Savior, even from the very things that's going to take the majority of the people in this world as an overwhelming surprise. Father, we avail ourselves to you this evening. We ask you to please forgive us of our sins, that you'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that you'll create in us a clean heart and take away our stony hearts, and that you'll give us a heart of flesh. Lord, I know that though these things may seem impossible with man, we're grateful that all things are possible with God. Please, Lord, give us a vision tonight to not only behold the problem, but by your grace to behold the solution. And may we find that that solution is in Jesus. And I don't want to use those words loosely, but Lord, I pray, help us to see what Jesus means to us practically so that by your grace, we will be a people prepared to meet our God. We thank you that you've heard this prayer, dear Father, and I commit myself into your hands afresh. Please, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. It's our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for you to turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the 13th chapter. It is in Revelation, the 13th chapter, that the Bible begins to unfold to us this final crisis that's going to be coming amongst the people of God. It's going to come amongst everyone in the world. But brothers and sisters, I'm here to let you know something. Before this final crisis takes effect in the world, it's going to affect God's people first. And therefore, you and I do well to take very serious cognizance to what the Bible says as we consider Revelation, the 13th chapter. And when you get there, please say amen. The Bible says in Revelation 13 and verse 1, John the Revelator says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. And the deadly wound was what? The deadly wound was healed in how much of the world? All the world wondered after the beast. Now, what beast is this talking about here in Revelation 13? This is dealing with the papacy, yes? Now, notice this. The Bible says that the papacy is going to walk with great, tremendous power. It has power. It has seat. It also has great authority. Now, it says that the papacy was going to suffer a deadly wound. Did that happen? When did that happen? That happened in 1798, that the papacy suffered that deadly wound. But the Bible prophesied that the wound was going to be what? Healed. And when the wound is healed, how much of the world? 
all the world was going to wonder after the beast. Now, did the Bible say worldlings? Did the Bible say worldly people? The Bible says all the world. So what's the context of world? That deals with everybody, everybody who occupies the world. Now, question, are you in this world? So according to the prophecy, are you going to wonder after the beast? You sound like the mixed multitude. That wasn't a trick question, but I want you to think with me. Brothers and sisters, the Bible did not say all the worldly people. It did not say all the worldlings. The Bible says all the world will wonder after the beast. Now, are you in this world? Yes, you are. So are you going to wonder after the beast? You know, something I learned a long time ago. It's been a saving grace in my studies. I've learned that scripture is the key that unlocks scripture. Anytime the Bible presents something to us, especially when it looks gloomy and it looks like it's filled with doom, that's an opportunity for us to go deeper into the word of God. You know what I did? I looked at this verse and I said, Lord, you mean to tell me that everybody's going to wonder after the beast? And then one day God said, son, is there anywhere else that the Bible talks about in the book of Revelation about people wondering after the beast? And the answer was yes. You know where it's found? Revelation, the 17th chapter. Go there with me. Let's qualify this world. You see, it says in Revelation, the 17th chapter, and now we're going to go ahead and look at Revelation 17, and we're going to consider what it says in verse 8. Did you know that Revelation 17, 8 talks about a group of folks who's going to wonder? Notice what it says. The Bible says in Revelation 17, now we're looking at verse 8. It says, the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall do what? Wonder. So here goes people who are wondering after the beast. But watch the qualifier. The qualifier says, whose names are what? Not written in the book of life. So when Revelation 13, 3 says that when the beast's wound was going to be healed and it says all the world was going to wonder after the beast, was it saying that everybody's going to wonder? No. What's the context of all the world? Those whose names are not written in the book of life. Anybody whose name is not written in the book of life when the beast's wound is healed they're going to be lost. And that's the reason why, brothers and sisters, the most important thing that you and I need to ask ourselves tonight is, Lord, how can I make sure my name remains in the book? You see, let me ask you a question. Is there anybody in here? Now, I'm not going to do anything as a result of your response, but we're reasoning with each other tonight. Is there anybody in here who has not yet given their hearts to Jesus Christ? Is there anybody in here like that? In other words, you, you might have come off the street and maybe you've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Is there anybody in this room like that right now? Would anyone be willing to say, yeah, that's me. I, I haven't done it yet because I'm not convinced. And if you're not convinced, that's all right. That just simply means time and reasoning. But is there anybody in this room that has not already given their hearts to Jesus? Anyone? Anyone? Good. So you know what that tells me? That tells me that all of you have done it. Now, if all of you have done it, which was my assumption, but I had to ask. That means then that when you gave your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, that means, brothers and sisters, that your name entered the book of life. Amen. But question. The same way that we would correct a Baptist if they were to say once saved, always saved, because we know that's error. Amen. 
is the same way. Should we not correct the Seventh-day Adventists to think once my name's in the book, it's always in the book? Notice what the Bible says in Exodus, the 32nd chapter. Is it possible that our names can be in the book of life at one point, but then it can be blotted out? You know, the work of Jesus right now in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary is not the work of just forgiving sins or covering them. The work of Jesus right now in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, his great focus right now is to blot sins out. But if we do not cooperate with Jesus and allow him to blot our sins out, something else gets blotted out. Notice how the Bible articulates this in the book of Exodus, the 32nd chapter. In Exodus chapter 32, you find that Moses was in the mount with God, but now Moses is coming down from the mount. And as he comes down from the mount, he notices that his own brethren are caught up in Egyptian worship. And as they're caught up in Egyptian worship, the Bible says in Exodus 32, starting at verse 30, notice what the Bible says. It says, and it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure, I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, what does Moses say to do? Blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book. But now notice how God responds in verse 34. Therefore now go, or rather 33, and the Lord said unto Moses, whosoever hath what? Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. The Bible makes it clear that just because a name entered the book of life does not mean that by default the name always remains. A name can be removed and the thing that can cause a name to be removed from the book of life is called sin. Now, that means then that when inspiration says that those who wander after the beast are those whose names are not written in the book of life. What do you think is the most important question that should be on the heart of any child of God that wants to see Jesus in peace? How can I make sure my name remains in the book of life? Because I already told you, you gave your heart to the Lord. So that means your name entered the book of life. But what you want to do is you got to understand your name doesn't remain in that book of life just because it entered there many years ago, many weeks ago, even yesterday. We must understand that a name that was once put in the book of life is the name that can be blotted out from the book of life. And there's one thing that can cause it. And it's called what? Sin. It's called sin. Therefore, the question is, how can I make sure my name remains? And notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter three. In Revelation, the third chapter, how can I make sure that my name remains in the book of life? The Bible says in Revelation, the third chapter, and we're going to consider Revelation chapter three, and now we're going to look at verse five. And the Bible says in Revelation, the third chapter and that fifth verse, notice what the Bible says. It says, he that what? He that what? He that overcometh. The same shall be clothed in white raiment. Read the next sentence with me. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Is that clear? If you and I want our names to remain in the book of life, the Bible says we must overcome. And Jesus wants us to overcome sin. 
And Jesus gave us all power to do it. And brothers and sisters, this experienced must be your experience before that image of the beast is set up and begins to bring out its launch upon the people of God. This must be our experience, which means that today, if you're hearing God's voice, harden not your heart. You see, the Bible goes back to Revelation 13. Go back there with me now. You see, in Revelation 13, it tells us that that beast wound is going to be healed. Now, is the wound healed? Is the wound healed? All right. We understand that that wound is not healed. Now, go to Revelation 13 and verse 11. Let's notice what the Bible says. Revelation 13 and verse 11. Now it brings up the second beast. This second beast is none other than the United States of America that's going to do something. Notice what it says. It says in Revelation 13, 11, and I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and he spake as a dragon. Now, here it is that there's a beast that's coming up out of the earth. Two horns like a lamb, but it speaks like what? A dragon. Now, what does a dragon speak like? How does a dragon even express itself? You ever thought about that? Aggression. Aggression. Okay. Anything else? Persecution. You see, go to the book of Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation 12, notice what it says in verse 13. It's talking about the dragon. And it actually shows us how the dragon would express itself. Look at what it says. It says in Revelation 12 and verse 13, notice what it says. How does a dragon speak? It says, when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, what did he do to the woman? He persecuted the woman which brought forth the man child. How was the dragon able to speak or express its power? Through persecution. What was it that gave the dragon the ability to persecute people? It was the state. So therefore, it was a combining of church and state. So watch this. When the dragon was healthy before it suffered a wound, when the dragon was strong and powerful, the way that it expressed itself was through the combining of church and state so that it can be a what kind of power? A persecuting power. Now, the Bible says in Revelation 13, 11, the second beast is on the same mission. It is first going ahead and it's going to act like a lamb and be very docile, but eventually it's going to speak like a dragon. And notice the mission of this second beast found now in verse 12 of Revelation 13. It says, and he exercises all the power of the first beast which was before him, which means that church and state is definitely coming back because that's the only way that the second beast can exercise all the power of that first beast. You follow that? So notice it says, and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So the great mission of the second beast is to bring everybody back to pay homage to the first beast. And this is why Jesus wanted to highlight this point of prophecy. To talk about that abomination of desolation that will stand in the very place of God and is going to become a persecuting and prosecuting power unto God's people. Now, think about this. Think about this. We were told in the book Great Controversy, page 445. This is what we're looking at. The image of the beast. It says when the leading churches of the United States uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common, shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then 
Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. So therefore, when we see all the leading churches come together and say, Rome, you're not so bad after all. Oh yes, there was a time that we protested against you, but now we're apostate Protestants. You know, I was studying with our training school this morning and I thought something was very interesting. Did you know that the churches that constitute Babylon are representative of what's called apostate Protestantism. Did you know that? Did you know that? America, brothers and sisters, is representative of apostate Protestantism. At one time, we believed in religious liberty. At one time, we believed in separation of church and state. We believed in all those wonderful things. But today, it's a whole different teaching now. It's a whole different focus. Apostate Protestantism. Now, do you know what God wants to rekindle in these very last moments of earth's history? The spirit of Protestantism, the true spirit of Protestantism. Are you following? God's desire right now is to rekindle the spirit of true Protestantism because apostate Protestantism has taken the reins all throughout our country. Are you following so far? Now, brothers and sisters, question. Did God give us an instrument to give to the world that was designed to help the people Understand the spirit of true Protestantism. What instrument was it that God gave us? He gave us a book called The Great Controversy. In The Great Controversy, do we learn about the spirit of true Protestantism? Yes, we do. But question, do you learn about the spirit of true Protestantism? Do you learn it in the later chapters of the book or do you learn it in the earlier chapters of the book? You learn it in the earlier chapters of the book. What's the great push that God wants us to make to the people today? To bring back the spirit of what? True Protestantism. But it's found in the earlier chapters of the book. So if a book comes about where we're giving it out to everybody, spreading it like the leaves of autumn, but is cut out the very teachings that had the spirit of true Protestantism, are we doing what God told us to do? Are you sure? Are you sure? I wonder if anybody understands what I'm saying to them. The book that heaven gave to us was called The Great Controversy. Oh, it's filled with a lot of hope, but it's called The Great Controversy. And God told us under his demand, yea, command. Take that book and give that book to everybody like the leaves of autumn. Because in that book, that's where the people can learn the true spirit of Protestantism. I wonder if there'll become a reformation in our literature distribution by the grace of God beginning tonight. Can the church say amen? Brothers and sisters, I believe in giving hope to people, but I've learned that hope comes through that book, The Great Controversy. Because people need to understand the spirit of true Protestantism. And it's found in the earlier chapters of that book. And when those chapters are taken out, the people can read all sorts of nice, cool things, but they miss the key thing. And that's key. 
We are to understand that this is what is taking place right now, and this is what is about to graduate to a very large level. You see, you'll remember this. You'll remember way back, 1923, that great statement that says, Sunday is our mark of authority. That was Rome talking. And Rome said the church is above the Bible. And this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. I wish Seventh-day Adventists would be as bold as Rome. It amazes me how Rome says, look, we changed the day, and we're not ashamed of it. In fact, Rome will tell you, if you really want to keep the scriptures, and if you really want to follow the Bible Sabbath, go be a Seventh-day Adventist. Rome is that bold that they can say that. But when we go around, we want to hide the fact that we have the spirit of prophecy. We want to hide the fact that we believe that Rome makes up that apostate movement. Brothers and sisters, we got to speak plainly. The greatest want of the world is the want of men. Men who will not be bought or sold. Men who in their inmost souls are true and honest. Men who do not fear to call sin by its right name. Men who are as true to duty as the needle to the pole. Men who will stand for the right, though the heavens may fall. Education, page 57. God is calling us not to muzzle our message. This is the time we need to be preaching it from the rooftop. It amazes me that with so much happening in our world that many of God's people can still be lulled to sleep. And many a times it's from Seventh-day Adventist pulpits. We have a message, brothers and sisters, for the brethren within and for the world without. And this is not the time for us to be gazing and staring at the churches and the books that come from the institutions called Babylon and thinking they can teach us how to give the people the last message. We need to get back to the Bible. We need to get back to the spirit of prophecy. And we need to leave out the rest, brothers and sisters. We're living in very serious and solemn times. Rome is not ashamed of their message. Don't be ashamed of your message. Their message comes from hell. Our message comes from the most holy place. Don't be ashamed of your message. Notice what inspiration tells us. It says the change of the Sabbath is the sign or mark of the authority of the Romish church. Those who, understanding the claims of the fourth commandment, choose to observe the false Sabbath in the place of the true are thereby paying homage to that power by which alone it is commanded. The mark of the beast is the papal Sabbath, which has been accepted by the world in the place of the day of God's appointment. You see that point she just said right there, where she said that those who understand the claims of the fourth commandment choose to observe the false Sabbath in the place of the true are thereby paying homage to that power by which alone it is commanded. Go to the book of Romans chapter six. Let's see how the Bible brings that very thought out in Romans, the sixth chapter. I've learned that the writings of Ellen White are simply a magnification of what the Bible already said. The Bible says in Romans, the sixth chapter, watch this Romans, the sixth chapter. And now we're looking at Romans six and we're going to look at the 16th verse brings out the very same point that we just read right there in this quote. It says in Romans 6 and verse 16, it says, Know ye not that to whomsoever ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. When we choose to accept. Now, the reason why this is important to us is because I'm going to show you something very startling in just a few moments. And it's not for the purpose of startling you, but it's startling because it's a fact. And brothers and sisters, what God wants to bring across to our hearts is that we are living in a time where most individuals are going to choose Satan rather than Jesus, even from the remnant church. 
And this is why God wants us to get this thing clear in our minds now to come back to our foundations, to get back to the blueprint and understand what God is trying to articulate to yours and my mind beginning tonight. Notice what inspiration says. I want you to think about this. We're told as America, the land of religious liberty shall unite with the papacy, enforcing the conscience and compelling men to honor the false Sabbath. The people of every country on the globe will be led to follow her example. Volume six of the testimonies, page 18. Think about it. It says as who? America the land of religious liberty shall unite with the papacy enforcing the conscience and compelling men to honor the false Sabbath. The people of every country on the globe will be led to follow her example. So that tells us that the Sunday law test, the Sunday law issue is going to start first where right here in America. That's why it says foreign nations will follow the example of the United States, though she leads out yet the same crisis will come upon our people in all parts of the world. This is why we pay especially attention to what's going on in America. This is why we're looking at the climate. This is why last night when we see that everyone from presidents to senators and people in government, people with powerful positions and influence, when they begin to relinquish their religious beliefs because of the moving of the people. That's God's way of letting us know that time is almost finished. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. This is the time we need to be falling on our knees. And like volume five of the testimonies, page 70, 717 and 718 says we should be going on our knees, pleading with God. Father, give us a few more years. Not so we can find a husband, not so we can find a wife, not so we can go ahead and get our degrees so we can go ahead and go to school and try to create some career and lifestyle for ourselves. No, brothers and sisters, it says we are to go to God. And to pray, Father, give us a few more years because we are not ready. We are not ready for this crisis. I believe, brothers and sisters, that the world is ready to launch us to pass a Sunday law. I believe that. What I believe is we're not. And it is God's mercy that is holding back this crisis because God knows would I even find anybody faithful in the remnant. And therefore, God consistently brings these messages back. I told you last night that Noah preached the same message. I am not coming to you. You got to hire some other evangelist. I am not interested in teaching you anything new until we get this right first. I'm serious, brothers and sisters. We love we love new and startling things. We love to hear things that make us say, wow, ooh, man, I never heard that before. And all we do is we add it to the all, all the other light that we received from years past that we're still not following. God is saying to all of us, listen, why should I give you new light if you and I are not following the old light that he already gave us? So therefore, the Lord wants to do first things first. Get that message right. Really and truly, brothers and sisters. You see, we are told, watch this. Why did God use a seal? I mean, I want you to think about that. Satan says forehead or the hand. That's what Satan says. I don't care. Satan says, look, forehead, believe it or hand. Don't believe it. Just be quiet and cooperate with it. Satan says, either way, I don't care, because as long as you yield yourself to obey me, you're my servant. But God says forehead only. God says, when it comes to that seal, I want to put it in your forehead only. Now, notice this Esther, the eighth chapter. Let's notice what the Bible says as we consider Esther, the eighth chapter. Why does God want to use a seal? Esther, the eighth chapter. Notice what the Bible says here now. 
in Esther, the book of Esther, chapter 8, and we're going to go ahead and look at Esther 8 and verse 8. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in Esther, the 8th chapter, and we're looking at that 8th verse now, and here's what it says. It says, write ye also for the Jews as it liketh you in the king's name and seal it with the king's ring. Now, why did God want to do? Why, why does God use a seal? Notice this. Seal it with what? The king's ring. Now, notice what it says. It says for the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring. What does it say? May no man reverse it. God used that symbol of a seal because God says when an individual properly understands the symbol and the functionality of a seal, a seal is something that once it is put on a document, it cannot be removed. It cannot be reversed. The reason God used that seal, because we're going to entertain this question. When we look at what is the seal of God and can it be seen? Notice what inspiration says. It says it is not any seal or mark that can be seen, but a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so that they cannot be moved. You see, that's why once a man receives a seal, there's no such thing as him going back later on and saying, oops, my fault, and going back into sin. The only people who get the seal are those who are settled. And brothers and sisters, you and I must understand that when the Sunday law test comes to us, we're going to only receive one of two things, either a seal or a mark. God's desire is that you would receive the seal. But if you're going to receive the seal, you and I must be settled now into the truth. You know, one of the things that amazes me, especially out here in the West Coast, is that it seems like whenever a new doctrine comes, so many of God's people who come to tons and tons of present truth meetings, you will end up getting caught up in that same foolishness. We talk so much about the Bible. We talk so much about the spirit of prophecy. But the same individuals, all of a sudden people come along and they start talking about a 25-20 and all of a sudden God's people lose their balance. People come along, they start talking about feast days. All of a sudden, the same people come into present truth meetings, and now here it is, they're observing the feast days. Another person comes along with one of the most ludicrous doctrines I've ever heard of, which is lunar Sabbaths. I mean, I've heard some strange things, but brothers and sisters, that one? I said, where in the world did you get that from? Did you know that I was at Advent Hope a few months back when I was back here? And somebody came to me and said, Brother Lemon, did you hear about the 2400-day prophecy? I said, you only hear this stuff in the West Coast. <laughs> I said, what's going on? I was, I'm like, what's going on out here? No, I promise you, there's crazy stuff in the East Coast, too. <laughs> Satan's there, too. But brothers and sisters, what I'm saying is, is that there's, it seems like there are distractions and winds of doctrine that are blowing some of the most faithful attendants to the present truth meetings. You and I must get to a point that we're settled into the truth, and you cannot be moved anymore. No matter how much wind blows, no matter how much somebody comes with all the charisma in the world and tries to make it seem like everything is truth, brothers and sisters, you got to get so much into the word of God, both the written and the living, that God becomes first, last, and best in your life. And you dare not let anybody take it away from you. I've, re I've read in Proverbs 23 and verse 23. You know what the Bible says in Proverbs 23, 23? It says, buy the truth and sell it not. You and I got to realize that that truth 
that God has made available to us that we can buy that truth, brothers and sisters. But once you buy it, you got to secure it. You got to make sure you sell it not. Because I can guarantee you all sorts of wolves in sheep's clothing are going to come amongst God's people and try to introduce every foul wind of doctrine. You must become settled into God's truth. But you can't be moved, brothers and sisters. You cannot be moved. That's when God says that person can receive that seal. And I want it. How about you? Notice this. This was amazing to me. Diaz Domini, I've taught this a few times down here, but sometimes like we, we saw yesterday that repetition is absolutely necessary. Is that right? Amen. Remember, remember we saw what Jesus, Jesus told those disciples three times, I'm going to die. And then when he died, the disciples act like Jesus never told them. That's amazing. That's amazing. And therefore, I believe that repetition deepens impressions. Notice what it said. This was from Diaz Domini. Remember, now some of you, how many of you have seen this before? Some of you have seen this before. I know, I've seen your faces at all the meetings I've done out here. Now, look at this. It says, when through the centuries, this is talking about Rome. This is Dies Domini put together in 1998 by John Paul II. Look at, what, look at what he said. Rome is amazing to me. They let out all their secrets. They are an unashamed power. Look at what it says. When through the centuries, she, that's the church, has made laws concerning Sunday rest, the church has had in mind above all the work of servants and workers. Question. In centuries past, what was Rome's method of passing Sunday laws? You see that? That's why, that's why I got to repeat myself. I've shown these slides to you so many times. You should be able to say this off the top of your head by now. I know you guys download audio verse all the time. Come on, saints. Look at what it says. It says, when through the centuries. This is an open book test. Come on. <laughs> when through the centuries. She, the Roman Catholic Church, has made laws concerning Sunday rest. The church has had in mind, above all, the work of servants and workers. What was the chief reason Rome used to pass Sunday laws? They focused on workers and servants. They focused on the people. They looked at their needs. And they said, we must establish Sunday laws so it can help the people. You're following that? Now, look at this. It says, certainly not because this work was any less worthy when compared to the spiritual requirements of Sunday observance, but rather because it needed greater regulation to lighten its burden and thus enable everyone to keep the Lord's day holy. Now, therefore, also in the particular circumstances of our time, Christians will naturally strive to ensure that what? Civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. So therefore, Pope John Paul was encouraging everybody, go to civil powers and agitate them that they must bring back Sunday laws for the benefit of the people. Now, we have all sorts of agitations. Time Magazine, why isn't Sunday special anymore? So when Time Magazine comes out, Time Magazine says, hey, we need to get people to come back to Sunday observance. As a matter of fact, this is Newsweek. This is Newsweek. Newsweek, why isn't Sunday special anymore? Then Time Magazine says, and on the seventh day we rested, maybe those old blue laws weren't so crazy after all. So here it is. Now Time Magazine, Newsweek, that's the voice of the people. And last night we saw in Revelation 13 verse 14 that it's from the bottom up that the Sunday law is going to be passed. It's not going to be passed from a bunch of big, tough people up top that's just going to say, we want it, so it is what it is. That's not how America functions. 
America functions by votes. Now, they can coerce and they can definitely manipulate. They can do some things. But at the end of the day, it's the people that make the choice. And therefore, in Revelation 13, 14, when it tells us that they should make an image to the beast, it's going to be with the people. So when the people begin saying, hey, we want our Sundays back and we're prepared to go to law for it. That's when God's people need to get on their knees and say, Lord, give us a few more years. We're not ready for this. You see, look at this. Not only that. Never on Sunday, some retailers closing for religious reasons. People all, all throughout, this is happening all throughout America, all throughout America. Individuals are realizing that Sunday is the Lord's day and they need to come back to it. Notice this. It says the substitution of the laws of men for the law of God. The exaltation by merely human authority of Sunday and place of the Bible Sabbath is the last act in the drama. Volume 7 of the Testimonies, page 141. It's the last act. We're getting towards the last act. Brothers and sisters, I know often uh, Pastor Myers, he likes to talk about the, 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 the Earth's final movie. And he uses, that, he uses that terminology. Well, that comes from inspiration because it talks about a drama. Brothers and sisters, this is the last act in the drama. The last act in the drama is the enforcement of Sunday observance and bringing it amongst God's people so that we may be unfit and unprepared for that second coming of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about this. You see these people right here? It amazed me. You know who those people are? That's Jewish people, brothers and sisters. And you know what amazed me? While we see Sunday law agitations in America, did you know that there are Sunday law agitations in Israel? It says, will Sunday become part of the Israeli weekend? Notice what it says. This is March 4th, 2011. It says, Vice Premier Shalom decides to launch a campaign on issues, says move would cause a revolution as people receive more leisure rest time. Notice that. Enforcement of Sunday laws focusing on the people. Whose method is that? That's Rome. Notice what it says. A decade's worth of efforts to push the government. Now, if people just wanted to take Sunday off, why can't they just take it off? Why are they going to government, brothers and sisters? The reason why is because that's prophecy. They're going to government to make Sunday a day off were renewed over the past two weeks after Vice Premier Sylvan Shalom decided to begin a campaign on the issue. Look at what he said. This would cause a revolution in Israel, Shalom said in a statement released Thursday. This would make our country more normal? Israel? Brothers and sisters, when we think about the Sabbath, next to Seventh-day Adventists, we think of Jewish people. And we believe that that's normal. Now Israel is saying to have Sundays mandated from law so that people can get rest time, that would make Israel a more normal country. You know what they sound like? They sound like they're drunk with the wine of Babylon. You understand that, saints? Serious business. But look at that. It's not just in Israel. It's also in Singapore. It says Singapore, Singapore maids to finally get their day off. This was also put together March 6, 2012, last year. And look at what it says. It says, we need to treat our foreign labor force decently, manpower minister tells parliament. Now look again what they're doing. The Singaporean government. There goes government again. Why do they keep getting government involved? Why can't they do like all, all of us Seventh-day Adventists do? We, if we want a day off from Sabbath, what do we do? We trust God and we take the day off even if we lose. Why can't they do that? They're going to law, brothers and sisters. Why? Because prophecy has to be fulfilled. It says the Singaporean government's recognition of a weekly rest day as a basic labor right will make the lives of migrant domestic workers better. Notice Sunday laws focusing on the workers and servants. 
I mean, you see this thing just literally playing out right in front of your eyes. Sunday laws, workers of servants. Sunday laws, workers of servants. The two are connecting. Now, look at this. Greece. This was interesting because if anybody's studying anything about Greece, and especially if you're studying what's going on in their economy right now, Greece is in trouble. Greece is in serious trouble. They're already on their second bailout. It says Eurozone demands that Greece mandate a six-day work week in exchange for a second bailout. Now, they're mandating a six-day work week. So I'm thinking to myself, wow, they're going to go ahead and they're going to force everybody to work on Sundays. Isn't that amazing? But then all of a sudden, look at the rest of the article. It says September 5th, 2012. What does the rest of the article say? It says, but never on Sunday says Greek Prime Minister Antonis Samaras. That's interesting. He's going to mandate that people must work on Saturdays as well as the regular weekdays, but never on Sundays. And notice what it says. It says this is the last such package of spending cuts the Greek economy can take no more. In other words, we're seeing Sunday law agitation from a government level, not just in America, but all over the world, brothers and sisters. And here it is that people used to say, Seventh-day Adventists are crazy talking about one day there'll be Sunday laws established in America and otherwise. But you know what? It doesn't sound crazy anymore. It does not sound crazy anymore. Now the world can see it. Now, to not see it, you have to choose to be blind or choose to be ignorant. And here it is that these things are happening right before our very eyes. Now, this one was very interesting. June 6, 2012, you remember Pope Raxinger? He got together and had that great big family day where the whole church was to focus on the family. But notice what he said. It says, Sundays must be a day of rest dedicated to God, family, the Pope says. It says, the demands of work can't bully people out of needed time off, Pope Benedict XVI said. So notice that he's focusing on the people. Sunday must be a day of rest for everyone so people can be free to be with their families and with God, the Pope says. By defending Sunday, one defends human freedom. Look at the language, brothers and sisters. Clear as day in front of our eyes. And we think that this is the time to not herald the third angel's message? To not sound that alarm? Brothers and sisters, you've got to see these things right before our eyes. Think about it. In 2010, when all these calamities were taking place, MSN recorded it, and I want you to see what MSN said. They said this was the year the earth struck back. Earthquakes, heat waves, floods, volcanoes, super typhoons, blizzards, landslides, and droughts killed at least a quarter million people in 2010, the deadliest year in more than a generation. More people were killed worldwide by natural disasters this year than have been killed in terrorism attacks in the past 40 years combined. Now, notice what they're saying. They're, they're, they're highlighting earthquakes, heat waves, and floods, and all these things. Now, that was a 2010 record. For those of us in our, our students in class today, we were, we were watching the chain of prophecy, and we started looking at 2011 made 2010 look like a joke. Now watch this. All these calamities are happening. Notice what it says. Earthquakes, heat waves, floods, and you know how it's, it's listing all those things. Now this is secular media, but watch this. We should know where it's all leading to. Notice where it's leading to. It says, in accidents and calamities by sea and by land, in great conflagrations, in fierce tornadoes and terrific hailstorms, in tempests, floods, cyclones, tidal waves, and earthquakes, in every place and in a thousand forms, who's exercising his power? It says, Satan is exercising his power. Now watch this. It says, and then the great deceiver will persuade men that those 
who serve God are causing these evils. So in other words, the world is startled right now. The world is watching. 2010, we've never seen so much calamities. 2011, we've never seen so much calamities. So the calamities keep going higher, higher, higher. The costs and the economy gets affected and everything is going lower, lower, lower. So low economy, high calamities has the world in a state of perplexity. Now, because the world is in a state of perplexity, anytime you're in perplexity, you know what you look for? A solution. You look for a solution. We need to solve these issues. And you know what we're told through inspiration? They're going to come together and they're going to say, you know what? It's those Seventh-day Adventists. It's those people that keep honoring God and keeping his Sabbath. They are the reason for all these causes. Look at it. It says, and then the great deceiver will persuade men that those who serve God are causing these evils. It will be declared that men are offending God by the violation of the Sunday Sabbath and that this sin has brought calamities which will not cease until Sunday observance shall be strictly enforced. This is where these calamities, this is where our economy, this is where it's leading to. And the question is, is that in the Bible? Can we find somewhere in the Bible that it shows that calamities and all these things could be blamed? That the reason that nations can suffer is because of a violation of God's Sabbath? Go to Nehemiah, the 13th chapter. Satan is a wily foe, brothers and sisters. Notice what the Bible says in Nehemiah. The 13th chapter. The Bible says in Nehemiah, the 13th chapter, Nehemiah, God's servant, God's prophet. Nehemiah saw that individuals were violating God's true Sabbath. And notice what Nehemiah says, starting at verse 15 of Nehemiah, the 13th chapter. If you're there, please say amen. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in Nehemiah 13, 15, in those days, saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses and also wine, grapes and figs and all manner of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. These brethren were breaking the Sabbath of the Lord. Why? Because they were buying and selling on the Lord's day. Now, look at how Nehemiah deals with this in verse 16 and onward. It says in verse 16, there dwelt men of Tyre also therein, which brought fish and all manner of ware and sold on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Now, notice what Nehemiah did in verse 17. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, what evil thing is this that ye do and profane the Sabbath day. Did you know that the Bible says it's an evil thing when we conduct business on the Lord's Sabbath? The Bible says that. I remember I was doing a Bible study and there was a, a, a it was a beautiful Bible study. And we got to this point where we started talking about Sabbath keeping. And I started talking to, um, to the brethren. And at the end of the meeting, one of the elders came to me. Elder came to me. And he said, Brother Lemon, he says, am I to understand that it is a sin? To buy and sell on the Sabbath and do all these things? I said, my brother, I said, it's not just a sin. I said, the Bible says it's an evil thing. He said, Brother Lemon, he says, do you know that me and all the elders go out every Sabbath to restaurants for Sabbath afternoon lunches? I said, are you serious? He said, yes, I am. He said, I did not know this. I said, my brother, well, you know it now. And you know what God says when you didn't know he winks at it. But when you know, you got to repent. 
And he said, you know what? He says, you pray for me. You help me that, that I will comply with God's word. And I did pray with him. I prayed with him right there. Do you know that God was so good to that man? God allowed that light to come to that man. You know why? One, a few months later, he died. Just a few months later, died. Brothers and sisters, God loved that man so much that God saw that he was living and practicing sin. And God wanted to save him from sin, not in sin. And therefore, God had to make that sin known to his mind. And he saw that sin for himself and he made the reform. And I know that God blessed that man. And I believe by the grace of God, he'll be counted in that first resurrection. Nehemiah says that it was an evil thing to buy and sell on the Lord's Sabbath day. And then notice what he says in verse 18. It says, did not your fathers thus? In other words, didn't your fathers do the same thing, which was buying and selling on the Lord's day? And look at how he reasons with them. Did not your fathers thus? And did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this what? City. It says, yet ye bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Is it biblical that nations can suffer calamity because of violating the Sabbath. Yes, and that's the exact argument that the beast is going to use. That's the exact argument. They're going to literally say, it's biblical. These violators of the Sunday Sabbath are the reason that calamities are falling on America, and we have to deal with them so that the world may be cleansed from them. And we can be restored. Notice the finishing of the quote. It says, and that those who present the claims of the fourth commandment, thus destroying reverence for Sunday, are troublers of the people, preventing their restoration to divine favor and temporal prosperity. We are going to be blamed for the calamities taking place in this world. We are going to be blamed for the reason that our economy just cannot come back. And forces are going to come together and eventually say, it's those people. We need to get rid of them. And then our problems will go away. This is an experience that is soon to come amongst many of us, brothers and sisters. And this is why Jesus is saying, today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. We don't have much longer. I can't give you a day. I cannot give you an hour. But brothers and sisters, I can pay attention to the season. And I can see that this thing is right upon us. And we are still playing games with God, brothers and sisters. Something's got to change. Look at what inspiration says. Remember we said when the leading churches, the leading churches shall join the United States, just shall join with the other churches. And then, of course, they're going to eventually try to influence the state. Brothers, since 2006, the CCT has been put together, Christian churches together. That's been since 2006. That's seven years ago now. And here it is that they come together. Christian churches together in the USA is a new form growing out of a deeply felt need to broaden and expand fellowship, unity, and witness among the diverse expressions of Christian faith today. So we were told by the prophet when the leading churches start coming together, uniting upon such points as are held by them in common. That's what you and I, as God's students of prophecy, we should have been looking for this. And when you see it, that is where we need to start getting ready. Now watch this. We're told... When the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common, shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy and the infliction of civil uh, penalties upon dissenters will, they, will invariably result. Great Controversy 445. 
Now, Catholic Church recognizes Protestant baptisms in the U.S. That was just last or a month or so ago, February 8th, 2013. Catholic Church came together. They said, you know what? We want to recognize you Protestant baptisms now in the U.S. In other words, everybody's becoming friends. They're coming together. Everybody's getting nice and friendly now. Catholic Church recognizes Protestant baptisms in the U.S. 3.5 million Protestants take an important step in reconciling with Rome. That was just a month or so ago, brothers and sisters. We're supposed to be looking at this. It is almost as if, you see, Noah, he had animals. Those animals, when they walked inside of the ark, those animals were supposed to be a wake-up call because anytime you see a sheep walking in front of a lion and the lion is not attacking the sheep and they are almost in friendly manner walking inside of that ark, that's supposed to get somebody's attention. Brothers and sisters, these are like the lions and the sheep walking together in harmony. We're literally watching the things unfold that we've been told. And the question is, what is yours in my day-to-day life? Do you know some of us woke up this morning and did not think it necessary to have deep heart devotion with God? Do you know how many of us in this room... We dare not go to work late because we don't want the man to fire us, but we think that we can just cheat God and not even get up and have devotion this morning. And we claim that we're getting ready for the final crisis. Brothers and sisters, don't lie to yourselves. We need to have an experience with Jesus that is so genuine, so real, so deep-rooted, so filled with love that, brothers and sisters, you can have the world, but give me Jesus. Is that your attitude tonight? If it's not, there's no other way we're going to be be able to make it through this. He must become first, last, and best because we're watching the animals walk right inside the ark. Look at this. The Catholic Church will recognize baptisms performed by some of America's largest Protestant churches and vice versa. It says after the group signed an agreement on January 29th. How many of you even knew about this agreement? You understand that, saints? This is what we're supposed to be looking for. This is just a couple of months ago. Look at what it says. The Presbyterian Church, the United Church of Christ, the Reformed Church in America, the Christian Reformed Church in North America signed the common agreement on mutual recognition of baptism. With the Catholic Church in the first formal baptism agreement the Catholic Church has ever signed, ever signed with an American group. I mean, we're just watching history. Get made right in front of our very faces. It says combined, the four Protestant groups have 3.5 million members. The Presbyterian Church is the third largest mainline Protestant church in the U.S. It says the agreement was signed at the opening of the annual meeting of the Christian Churches Together group, an association of 36 denominations. We just named four. But how many denominations? 36. 36 denominations, seven other groups. The text was distributed to all the groups to encourage them to join as well. And they will be joining suit very soon. Brothers and sisters, do you know, I mean, look at this. These are literally the documents of the signatures. This is open public information for anybody who just cares to research it. We got to become better students of prophecy because these things are unfolding for us, brothers and sisters. And let me tell you something. One of the sweetest statements I learned from the spirit of prophecy, Ellen White says, God will not do that which he has given you to do for yourself. God will not do 
That which is given you the ability to do for yourself. There's never a day. You know what some of us do? We'll get on the Internet and we'll play on Facebook and we're posting all these pictures and everything else. But many a times we're not going on the Internet to search information to find out what's happening next. So I can know what I need to do that I may embrace this message and give it faithfully to those who I come in contact with on a day to day basis. Some of us are spending so much time in Facebook, as my dear friend, Brother Davis, always says. Some of us are spending so much time in Facebook, but if your face is kept out of this book, that's a problem, brothers and sisters. And that's the reality of many of us. We spend more time on Facebook than keeping our face in this wonderful book of God's word. God will not accept our excuses, brothers and sisters. You and I need to learn how to put Jesus first, last, best in our lives. Because time is almost finished. Brothers and sisters, look at this. Catholic church and trade unions form holy alliance to enforce Sunday observance. This just happened. This literally just happened. Look at this. It says trade unions across Europe held small protests March 4th, calling for governments to force companies and shops to shut on Sundays as Catholic preachers supported the campaign from the pulpit. It says religious groups and trade unions organized under the banner of the European Sunday Alliance helped organize protests in 12 European countries. Now, look at this. We are told in the world gigantic monopolies will be formed. Men will bind themselves together in unions that will wrap them in the folds of the enemy. A few men will combine to grasp all the means to be obtained in certain lines of business. Trades unions will be formed, and those who refuse to join these unions will be marked men. Letter 26, 1903. The trades unions will be one of the agencies that will bring upon this earth a time of trouble such as not been since the world began. Letter 200, 1903. These unions are one of the signs of the last days. Letters 26, 1903. The prophet of the Lord told us that these unions were going to be used to bring about a time of trouble. These unions were going to be used. And now here it is. We're seeing them being used. And to the point that it says Vatican works to stop Sunday shopping in Italy. This was December 19th, 2012. Just a few months ago. Now look at this. It says in what may seem an unlikely alliance, the Catholic Church Trade unions and Italian small business associations have joined forces in a bid to save Sundays from shopping and liberalize shopping hours. It then goes on to say, we need one day when everyone can rest. This is the origin of Shabbat. And in fact, even Muslim organizations support us. Do you see that? That's why the Bible says in the forehead or the hand. You never get a bunch of Muslims to acknowledge that Sunday is God's day or Allah's day. But you can definitely get Muslims to cooperate with Sunday laws for the purpose of economy. People still have to eat. People still have to conduct business. And the love of money is still the root of all evil. And many individuals will cooperate with the beast power and accept the mark of the beast for the purpose of survival. Even though they don't believe at all that Sunday is a holy day. Notice this, saints. The Reverend Marco Scudalone of Campo Samperio, it says Italy became an instant celebrity when he labeled Sunday shopping a sin and called in his parishioners to do penance for it. Sundays, he told the Corriere del Veneto, the newspaper, are important, not just in the religious sense. They are one of the few occasions left for families to be together. Notice that they focused on the family. But brothers and sisters, I saved the best for last. You see, while all these things are happening and all these are in incredible harbingers, I believe that just a few weeks ago that something opened before our eyes. And I said, Lord, have mercy. Does God people see it? We have found ourselves now 
for the first time, publicly mentioned, publicly open, that there is now a Jesuit pope. First time. A Jesuit pope. What amazes me about him is he is a very interesting man. Because notice what it says about him. When he was put in office, do you remember what it said? It says that, number one, he takes the bus. He doesn't even ride in the quote-unquote Pope mobile. He said, let me go ahead and take the bus and be around the common people. They offered him his wonderful, beautiful room. They said, oh, no. He says, I don't want that. Just give me a nice little apartment. I'll stay in a little humble apartment. Then just a few days ago, I don't even know if it's been a week yet. Just a few days ago, this same man has been found doing something that we haven't seen often, brothers and sisters. He is found going to a juvenile prison and washing the prisoners' feet and kissing their feet. Now, we have record upon record upon people kissing the Pope's feet. But we don't have a lot of records where the Pope goes and washes a bunch of criminals' feet and kisses their feet as well. Now, when, when I looked at this, I said, this is interesting. I said, Father, where, where? it reminded me of something I read. Because this man is, lit. in other words, do you know that the world is wondering after him right now? They're literally wondering after him. Because they're saying, never have we seen a pope so humble, so people-friendly, embracing everybody. Never have we seen it before. This is what the world is saying. But watch this. Look at this. Great Controversy 234. Throughout Christendom, Protestantism was menaced by formidable foes. It says the first triumphs of the Reformation passed. Rome summoned new forces, hoping to accomplish its destruction. At this time, the order of the Jesuits was created. In other words, when popery was going down and when Protestantism was rising back up again through Reformation, this was literally the Jesuit order was brought in to crush out Protestantism. And to revive popery. Look at this. It says the most cruel, unscrupulous, and powerful of all the champions of popery. The Jesuits. Now look at this. After it made this point, it says there was no crime too great for them to commit. No deception too base for them to practice. No, what's that word? No disguise. Too difficult for them to assume. Look at what they vowed. Vowed to perpetual poverty and humility. It was their studied aim to secure wealth and power, to be devoted to the overthrow of Protestantism and the reestablishment of the papal supremacy. Look at what it says next. When appearing as members, look at how the Jesuits would appear before the people. Do you see what I see? It says, when appearing as members of their order, they wore a garb of sanctity. I wonder how they wore their garb. Look at what it says. Visiting prisons. Do you see what I see? Brothers and sisters, do you see what I see? It says visiting prisons and hospitals, ministering to the sick and the poor, professing to have renounced the world. Oh, no, don't give me a big, large apartment. Just give me a little apartment. Oh, no, don't give me the Pope mobile. Just let me take a little bus. 
and bearing the sacred name of Jesus, who went about doing good. But under this blameless exterior, the most criminal and deadly purposes were often concealed. It says, under various disguises, the Jesuits worked their way into offices of state. Climbing up to be the counselor of kings and shaping the policy of nations. It says, the Jesuits rapidly spread themselves over Europe. And wherever they went, there followed a revival of popery. Brothers and sisters, do you see what I see? Brothers and sisters, that's why we have no time to play games. Everything is about to wrap up. You can see it, brothers and sisters, if you just let God show you. If you ask God, give me eyes, Psalm, Lord, you can see it. Look at what it says. We're told this because you know what? There's a big problem. I'm getting ready to close. Watch this. There's a big problem. You want to know what that problem is? Is that while all these agitations are taking place, while all of these things are happening, this is what God says. When the religion of Christ is most held in contempt, when his law is most despised, then should our zeal be the warmest and our courage and firmness the most unflinching to stand in defense of truth and righteousness when what? The majority forsake us. Who's writing that? Who wrote this? Ellen White. So when she says us, who is she talking about? She's talking about Seventh-day Adventists. So what's going to happen amidst Seventh-day Adventists? The majority are going to turn their backs on Jesus. When are they going to turn their backs on Jesus? It says to stand in, truth, in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us. It says when his law is most despised. When is God's law most despised? When there's a law passed against his law. It says that when the Sunday law passes and when that test comes to God's people, it says the majority of God's people are going to be lost. They're going to turn their backs on Jesus. And you know what's amazing? I wanted to know, Father, why? Why is it that the majority are going to turn their backs on Jesus? You want to know why? Would you like to know why? Notice what inspiration says. It says, as the storm approaches... It says a large class of those who have professed faith in the third angel's message. Here's the issue. It says, but who have professed faith in the third angel's message, but have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth. Those abandon their positions. Join ranks with the opposition. And become the most bitterest enemies of their former brethren. You know, Jesus put this same label out. You know what Jesus said? He said in Matthew, the seventh chapter. He said, not many. There will be many who will say, Lord, Lord. Haven't we prophesied in your name? Haven't we done all these great things? And you know what Jesus says to them? He says, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. And you know why he said, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity? You know why? Go to Matthew chapter 7 as we close. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, why? Why does he say, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity? In the book of Matthew, the seventh chapter, why? Why is it? You know what the Bible says? As we play. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, right there in verse 21. 
The Bible says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But notice the transition. What does it say? But he that doeth the will of my father, which is in heaven. Jesus literally showed us why the majority will be lost. And the reason why is because they did not do the will of his father, which is in heaven. So naturally, as I'm studying the Bible, I said, Father, what is your will? And you know what God did? He said, son, you already know. You've read it several times. First Thessalonians four and verse three. This is the will of God. Even your sanctification. That's the reason why Jesus is going to say to a bunch of workers for him. I can't let you in my house. They're going to say, but wait a minute. You mean to tell me that I preached and I baptized thousands of individuals and I can't get in? Jesus says, yes. I can't let you in. I can't let you in. You mean to tell me that though I gave my money, returned a faithful tithe. Lord, don't you know I make a six, yay, seven figure income? I've put more money in God's church than the common man. Jesus says, I know. I know. But I can't trust you in my house. I appreciated your money, but I wanted your heart before I wanted your money. You gave me your money, but you never gave me your heart. Jesus says, I'm sorry. I can't let you in my house. But Lord, I did all sorts of miracles. I even saw demons cast out by the very work of my preaching. Jesus says, I saw it too. And I was just being merciful to you to help you see that you needed me more. But instead, you took the credit to yourself. And you began to think of yourself more than you should have. And you never gave me your heart when that's what I wanted more than anything else. I wanted your heart. But Lord, I changed my diet. I changed the way I worship. We got rid of all the bad stuff and all these things. And Jesus says, yes, but reformation without revival of the heart is dry formality, heavy drudgery, self-righteousness. Christ says, you did not do the will of my father. And God's will is that we may be a sanctified people to be holy as he is holy. That's what God wants more than your money. That's what God wants more than your various services of good duties to others. God wants your heart. Proverbs 23, 26. My son, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. That's the reason Why a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message, but were not sanctified by obedience to the truth. They abandon. And they become the most bitterest enemies of their former brethren. It breaks my heart to think that I could possibly become your most bitterest enemy. You know, there's so many of you that I've talked to over the phone. There's so many of you that I've emailed and you've emailed me and we've 
dialogue through Facebook. There have been meetings from SWYC to Advent Hope and different places where I've had the privilege of seeing your faces. And sometimes we break aside in groups and we pray with each other because of the calamities and trials in your lives. Brothers and sisters, it would be a tragedy for you to come this far and to still be lost. It would be a tragedy. Satan has set up a most ingenious diabolical plan to make sure that we are lost. But I'm so grateful that if God is for me, who can be against me? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Brothers and sisters, tonight, the first message, a final crisis is coming. There's nothing in the natural world that can protect you from this final crisis. But Jesus is saying to you, give me your heart. I want your eyes to start observing my ways. But the thing is, is that you got to understand, you will seek me, you will find me when you search for me with how much? That's the issue. Most of us give God part of our heart. We don't give him all. We don't say, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. We say some of my will, some of your will, God. That's the agreement that I'm establishing with you. And God says, I can't make those kind of agreements with you. Tonight, brothers and sisters, if there's anybody in this room that you can say, Lord, I can see clearer than I've ever seen before. A crisis is coming. I'm not ready for this crisis. But if Jesus is in me, then I can overcome as he overcame. And brothers and sisters, we're going to define that throughout the rest of this week. Because here's what I've learned. When we talk typically about as it was in the days of Noah, you know what we usually focus on? The wicked. Right or wrong? Whenever we talk about as it was in the days of Noah, we think about all the wickedness that was done in the days of Noah. Will there be wicked people in our day as there were wicked people in Noah's day? Yes? You know what that tells me? That means that if the wicked in Noah's day was a type of the wicked people in the last days, you know what that tells me? That means that the righteousness of Noah was a type of some righteous people in the last days. And you know what I want to do this week? I want to study with you how we can be like Noah. It's easy to tell you about all the wicked people. But just showing you a bunch of wickedness doesn't show you how to get into the ark. I want to show you how Noah got into the ark. Because there's still an ark of safety that God is calling all of us to right now. But you've got to be in the condition of Noah to get in that ark. And that's why tomorrow night we launch. Tomorrow night, we're going to get practical about it, brothers and sisters. Tonight's a general call. If you haven't surrendered that heart to Jesus, if you know that there's been portions and areas of your life that have not been surrendered to Christ, and you've been holding on to it because we got the spirit of rebellion within us, that needs to be surrendered tonight. Seriously, I want you to start searching your heart right now. Lord, is there anything in my life that I have not fully given you government over me? And if there is, that needs to be surrendered tonight. And then tomorrow night, we're going to zoom in on that life of Noah and Noah's experience by the grace of God 
is going to be our experience. And so my appeal tonight is very simple. If you know, if you know If you know there's something in your life that you know God has been pricking you and God has been telling you, I'm trying to save you, but you're frustrating the gospel because you keep holding on to this darling sin. Whether it be a man in your life, whether it be a woman in your life, whether it be a video game or whether it be a television program, whether it's something on the point of appetite or something about our attitudes, whatever it is. If you know there's something in my life that I know God has been calling me to let him take that sin away and I have been frustrating the gospel and I have not allowed him to do it. Tonight, I am surrendering my will to God and letting him take away that sin. If there's something like that still in your life that has not been surrendered already, then I'm inviting you to stand to your feet. You're making a decision because you're saying, Lord, I know there's something sinful that I'm holding on to. I'm holding on to it. I'm holding on to it. I already know it's wrong. You've already told me it's wrong. But I have not allowed you to have government over me to take it away. You know specifically what it is. You know what it is. Tonight you're saying, Lord, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. You are the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me, Lord, after your will. While I am waiting, right here, yielded, still. And so, brothers and sisters, if you're standing because of that, then please understand, you got to leave this place free from that burden. And you got to let Jesus take that thing away and don't frustrate the gospel anymore. Let him have it. Let him be that lamb of God. Let him take away that sin from you. You'll find that he'll do it. He'll do it. He'll do it. And I pray that your life will stay surrendered to his will. As much as we are able to, let's go to our knees. and Let us have the Lord speak to our hearts as we commune with him. Father in heaven, dear God, you've helped us see so clearly we are living right at the very end of this world's history. Everything that you have said through the Bible and through your servant, Lord, Ellen White. We've watched it, Father, and we've seen these things come to pass. And some of us, we've been spiritually numb. We became indifferent and careless. But I believe tonight, Lord, you startled us. You woke us up. You helped us to see our need for you. Father, I'm praying in a very special way. Help my brothers and my sisters. That as they stood up and they realized that there's something in their lives that they have just been holding on to and are refusing to let go. Lord, I pray, please give them victory. You told us that there are some things that we can ask for that sometimes you'll tell us, wait. But you promised us that never, ever, when someone comes to you and they want victory over sin. You already promised that you will answer it every time. 
And Father, your people have stood before you tonight and they recognize that there's a darling sin in their lives, something they're holding on to. I pray, Father, please, let Jesus be that Lamb of God and take away that sin. May we repeat the words of Christ Object Lessons 159 that says, Lord, take my heart for I cannot give it. It is thy property. Keep it pure for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak and Christ-like self. And mold me and fashion me and raise me to a holy atmosphere where the rich currents of thy love can flow through our soul. Please, Lord, perform this miracle tonight. Make us free from that burden and that sin that so easily besets us. And as we see the day approaching, where that final crisis shall come and squeeze upon your people, Lord, I pray that Christ will be so much within us that when we are squeezed under the pressure of the Sunday law, that the only thing that could come out of us is what was in us, which is Christ Jesus, the hope of glory. Make this gospel real to us tonight, Father. Do something special in the heart of my young brothers and sisters who responded to this call, as well as to the adults as well. And Father, while on others thou art calling, I pray, please do not pass me by. There's more about Jesus that I want to learn, more of his lovely face to behold. Save us, we pray, dear God. And may we leave here hopeful and trustful that he that has begun a good work in us will perform it until the perfect day. This is our prayer that we ask, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.